Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 100. Vandalism. Yep, Chapter 100. It's quite a milestone. It's not the 100th episode, of course, as there have been bonus episodes and also some introductions. But it's still quite a milestone. If you'd like to leave me any feedback on this or any of the other previous 99, then please friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History, or contact me on email, mythandhistory at gmail.com. So, anyway, on with the episode. It's 410 AD, and we've reached a point of no return for the Roman Empire. Our story is now one of Roman losses. There are to be no more emperors who will restore the western half of the empire to greatness. The next four chapters are a sorry tale of the downward slide towards the eventual loss of half of a once great empire. The sack of Rome has sent shockwaves throughout the Roman world, but worse is to come, and the next big shock is about to arrive. In the middle of the 1st century BC, Julius Caesar had taken some forces over to that cold island on the edge of the world. The island, named Britannia, was not conquered by Caesar, but was brought into the empire by Claudius after a successful invasion in 43 AD. The island had produced quite a few rebels, and the northern part had never been conquered. Britain, though, had been part of the Roman Empire for more than 350 years. In the early 400s, Britain was protected by three infantry units and six cavalry units. There were also a series of fortifications which protected the entrances to major rivers. They are called the Saxon Shore Forts, which tends to suggest that Britain was under constant threat from Saxons. Historians are not sure about this, though, as there is no evidence that the threat from the Saxons was any greater than that from any other German tribe. At least the presence of the forts gave the population some feeling of security. That feeling, though, was soon to be taken away. Britain had produced many rebels and usurpers, and in 410 a man calling himself Constantine III was in charge. Like most of the rebels, he was a Roman, and so the Germanic tribes were no more fond of him than they were of the official Roman rulers. The constant Th Saxon and other barbarian attacks continued, and soon some of the leaders in Britain rebelled against the rebel. Some desperate Britons wrote to the Emperor Honorius, who was still sitting in safety in Ravenna. The British legions, once so strong, had been weakened by troops being taken away to fight elsewhere, and Roman rule in Britain was falling apart. Honorius received the letter, and, according to the historian Zosimus, reacted in his usual way, without any courage at all. He wrote back to the cities of Britain, telling them they must guard themselves and they must look after themselves. With that, Roman rule in Britain effectively ended. Never again was a Roman emperor able to call Britain part of his empire. It is said that a Roman Briton tried to carry out a brave and heroic last stand against the Saxon invaders and tried to keep the culture and civilization alive. He failed, but it may be from this story sprung the legend of King Arthur. What is certain is that the Anglo-Saxon colonisation of the island of Britain had begun. The Angles and the Saxons would hold sway on the island for 600 years, until the Normans came a-calling. The collapse of the Western Roman Empire had really started, although nobody living within its borders would actually have known. Honorius briefly recognised Constantine as his colleague, but the loss of Britain had reduced Constantine's power. When he brought his troops to Italy, relations with the emperor got even worse, and very soon he was no longer recognised as a colleague. In Spain, the Vandals, Suevi and Alans had arrived, and then a Briton called Gerontius heard about the loss of Britain and Constantine falling out of favour, and declared that a man called Maximus, yet probably another biggie, was Augustus. 
he defeated Constantine's son and then besieged Constantine at Arles. Honorius now had two usurpers on his hands. Fortunately, they were fighting each other. At last the emperor found a general who had some talent. An army was sent to Gaul under the command of Flavius Constantius. Constantius helped to crush Constantine's forces, and then most of Gerontius's men joined Constantine in the imperial army. Constantine had managed to defeat two rebels in one battle. Pretty good work. Gerontius fled, and Constantine was packed off to Ravenna to await his fate. His fate arrived before he got to the imperial capital. On the way he was beheaded, and his body never arrived in Ravenna. His head arrived, not attached to its neck, but planted on a spike. The Western Empire had lost Britain, but it had time for a bit of a rest before it lost any more territory. In 411, the Visigoths arrived in Gaul. They settled in Aquitania, but, yet again, the imperial officials didn't provide them with enough food. The Goths had a hostage, Theodosius's daughter, Galla Placidia, and they refused to let her go. In 414, she actually married the new Visigothic leader, Athulf. The singer of the wedding song was none other than Priscus Attalus, who had been declared emperor and then deposed by Alaric. Soon after this, the Visigoths declared him emperor yet again. But yet again, he didn't last long. He was defeated and later executed. Constantius and his forces were putting pressure on the Visigoths, who fled to Spain. Athulf was stabbed while inspecting his horses, and after a struggle for control, a new king called Wallia agreed peace with Constantius. Galla Placidia was allowed to return to Ravenna with Constantius, and there, in 417, married him. In 419, they had a son, to whom they gave the name Valentinian. The Visigoths were peacefully settled under a new leader called Theodoric. In 421, Honorius, grateful that his general had restored a little bit of order to the Western Empire, raised Constantius to the rank of Joint Augustus. Again, though, someone who may have been a strong and good emperor was dead before he had time to show how good he could be. Constantius III died of an unknown illness having reigned for seven months. There is no record of how old he was. So, what's been happening in the East while Honorius has been flapping around being useless in the West? Theodosius II had come to the throne in 410, aged just seven, on the death of his father, the brilliant, not, Emperor Arcadius. He was born while his father was already emperor, in the Purple Chamber in the Great Palace in Constantinople. This was considered to be very special, and is called being born in the purple. Theodosius II is one of the few emperors in the history of the Eastern Roman Empire who was born in the purple. This should have been a good sign. Theodosius was only seven and maybe would grow up to be a magnificent leader. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that he didn't. The empire was effectively ruled by the Praetorian prefect Anthemius, and it was he who was responsible for the building project which Theodosius II is most known for. Theodosius had absolutely nothing to do with the construction of the new walls on the land side of Constantinople, but they are known as the Theodosian Walls. Nobody who sees these walls will ever forget them. They are truly incredible. Two whole sets of walls were built. The inner wall was 12 metres high and 5 metres thick, and the outer wall 2 metres thick and reached a maximum height of 8.5 metres. There was a gap of some 15 to 20 metres between the inner and outer walls. Outside the outer wall was a moat. The inner wall had 96 guard towers, each 18 to 20 metres high. The outer wall also had 96 guard towers, which were situated halfway between the towers of the inner wall. The Theodosian walls were completed sometime around 413. They were not breached until 1453. 
For over a thousand years, the city was protected by them, and often the empire depended on them for its very existence. The walls around Themis' last contribution to the empire, because from 414 onwards, somebody else became the real power behind the emperor. In 414, Aelia Pulcheria was just 15 years old. We have seen some young emperors being dominated by their mothers. We have seen some young emperors being dominated by their grandmothers. We have seen some young emperors being dominated by their wives. Pulcheria was not the mother, grandmother or wife of Theodosius though. She was his sister. She was strong and loved power. She was also a very pious Christian. Pulcheria was the eldest of the surviving children of Arcadius, and so was the granddaughter of Theodosius the Great. The historian Edward Gibbon said that she alone, among all the descendants of the great Theodosius, appears to have inherited any share of his manly spirit and abilities. What he meant was she was the only person in the dynasty of Theodosius who was any use at all. Pulcheria really was only 15 when she took control of her brother and sisters. She had herself declared Augusta and immediately took charge of the young Theodosius's education. She taught him how an emperor must walk, how to ride his horse, alone or in procession, how he should sit on his throne, how to wear his imperial armour and robes and how to speak properly. She taught him how to remember which way was up and how to go to the toilet as well. By the time Theodosius was ready to rule by himself, Pulcheria had made herself the most important person at court and would remain the true power in the empire for virtually the whole of the long reign of her little brother. In 420, Theodosius told Pulcheria she needed to find him a wife. He told her exactly what he wanted. He said, I want you to find me a young girl, very, very comely, the most beautiful ever seen in Constantinople, of royal or patrician family, and if she isn't marvellously good-looking, then I have no use for her, however worthy or royal or rich she may be. But whoever is her father, if she is so very good to look at, I will take her. So, no, not shallow at all then. Pulcheria found him a beautiful Greek girl called Athenaeus. Theodosius was delighted. They married and she changed her name to Eudocia. She was also raised to the rank of Augusta, which began a difficult relationship with Pulcheria. In 423, another sister arrived in Constantinople. This time it was Galla Placidia, the sister of the Western Emperor Honorius. Since the death of her husband, the co-emperor Constantius III, she had been suffering in Ravenna. Honorius has started to show signs of being bonkers as well as useless. She fed with her children, Valentinian and Honoria, to the eastern court of the young Theodosius II. Honorius did not remain bonkers for too long. On the 15th of August 523 he died of an illness. He still wasn't 40 and had been a spectacularly bad emperor for a few months over 28 years. There were no members of the family of Theodosius the Great left in Ravenna now that Galla Placidia had fled with her children. Honorius's patrician Castinus raised a civil servant called Joannus to the purple. Joannus was a complete nobody and had very few people on his side. He received no support at all from Constantinople. The Eastern Emperor refused to accept Johannes and began to prepare to invade and place a member of the family on the Western throne. Forces from the East arrived in 425. The troops in Ravenna were persuaded by the Eastern commander, an Alan called Aspar, to betray Johannes. The poor nobody was forced to abdicate, then his hand was cut off and he was strapped to a donkey and paraded round the Hippodrome while the people insulted him and threw rotten food at him. He had reigned for about 18 months. A couple of months later, the unfortunate man was beheaded. Nobody knows how old he was, or really who he was. 
Joannes' head was on a spike, and the young Valentinian arrived in Ravenna and became Valentinian III. He was only six years old. His mother was Augusta of the West, and she began to rule in his name. So, now we have both the East and West under the control of young, weak emperors. It's lucky that there are some strong women helping them to reign. During the early reigns of the two grandsons of Theodosius, the barbarians continued to enter the empire and settle. There were very few proper battles. The barbarians simply decided which bit of the empire they wanted and set up camp and then a more permanent home in it. The rule of the Roman officials became weaker. The taxes were not collected from the barbarians and the money stopped flowing into the imperial treasury as it had before. The Visigoths, Vandals and Alans were in Spain. The Franks and Burgundians in Gaul Saxons and Jutes in Britain, the Ostrogoths and Huns beginning to enter the Eastern Empire. Barbarians were all over the place. In 418, the Visigoths had defeated the Alans and killed their king. Later, the Alans joined with the Vandals to create a larger barbarian force. In 429, the Vandals and Alans decided they didn't want to share Spain with the Goths, so they crossed into North Africa. The 80,000 people were led by Gizeric, king of the Vandals and Alans. It probably took several weeks for the whole lot of them to cross over the Straits of Gibraltar and land in Africa. It seems that the Vandal invasion met virtually no Roman soldiers. They moved across the continent and arrived in the major city of Hippo Regius in 431. They carried out a massive sack. The Vandals were noted for being particularly brutal in sacking cities, burning, looting and murdering as they went. It is from them we get the English word Vandal. Vandalism means destroying things for no reason. The commanders of the army of the Western Empire were too busy fighting other tribes in Gaul and nobody came to help the Roman people in Africa. In 439, Gizeric took Carthage. Like the sack of Rome by the Goths, this was a disaster for the Romans. Carthage had been one of the most important cities in the empire for hundreds of years. The North African region around Carthage was important to Rome. It provided a lot of the food for the city and an awful lot of money from taxes. In 441, the emperors prepared to attack the Vandals, but there were too many other invasions to deal with, and soon a treaty was agreed that gave Gizeric control of Carthage and the rich areas of North Africa. In the east, Theodosius II was more concerned with church and legal matters. He wasn't really interested in governing and barbarians, but he was interested in the law. He started a project to write down all of the Roman laws so it would be easier to give fair and balanced judgments. Between 429 and 438, the laws were published in 16 books. These laws are known as the Codex Theodosianus, or the Theodosian Code. The code formed the base of the most famous of all Roman law books, the one ordered by the Eastern Emperor Justinian a century later. Putting in place the Theodosian Code was probably the only important thing which Theodosius actually did himself during his very long reign. Pulcheria was still really in charge, and she had a number of churches, hospitals and places for the poor built. A whole section of the city was named after her. She also liked to meddle in religious issues and started a war with the Persians. Theodosius got involved in another Christian dispute, this time between Nestorius, Patriarch of Constantinople, and Cyril, Bishop of Alexandria. Again they were arguing about whether Jesus was human or not. Nestorius said he was two persons, one human, one God. Yet another council was called. Cyril won and Nestorius was banished. The Eastern Empire was plagued by short raiding attacks by the Huns. These scary barbarians arrived at Athiram, but an agreement was reached. 
the emperor chose to pay tribute which amounted to 350 Roman pounds of gold until 435 and 700 Roman pounds after that. When Roman Africa fell, both eastern and western emperors sent forces to Sicily to launch an attack at the Vandals at Carthage. Seeing the imperial borders without significant forces, the Huns and Sassanid Persians declared war. During 443, two Roman armies were defeated and destroyed by the Huns. Another peace agreement was reached. The Roman tribute was tripled to 2,100 Roman pounds in gold, and the Huns withdrew to the interior of their empire. The war with Persia, on the other hand, proved indecisive, and a peace was arranged without any changes to the borders. In the west, the new emperor had married Eudoxia, daughter of the eastern emperor. He was proving to be no more use to the western empire than Honorius. The magister militum, Flavius Aetius, held most of the power. Valentinian III was spoiled, pleasure-loving and influenced by sorcerers and astrologers. He divided his time primarily between Rome and Ravenna, not doing any governing and certainly not going anywhere near a battle. Like his mother, Valentinian was devoted to religion. He gave power over the church to the Bishop of Rome and he granted ever greater honours to each pope, particularly Pope Leo the Great, who we will meet properly soon. In the late 440s, both halves of the empire were in the hands of the grandsons of Theodosius the Great. Both of his grandsons were proving to be as useless as his sons. Both of them were still quite young, and both of them had already reigned for a long, long time. So things are really not good for the Romans now. The empire's full of barbarians and has lost a lot of territory. Britain's gone, North Africa's gone, the Eastern Empire's in a lot of trouble, and the Western Empire is falling apart. No. It really isn't very good at all. And next time, as you won't be surprised to know, it doesn't get any better. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.